Hi, I'm Matt Quinn. Thanks for joining us for the first episode of Decision Point. Today, we welcome Elon Alon, Professor of Strategy and International Marketing at the School of Business and Law at the University of Agder. We discuss his case, The Espresso Lane to Global Markets. Originally published in 2012, the case features world-renowned Italian coffee producer Ely. We get into the complexities of the case, Elon's fieldwork, case writing tips, and more. Enjoy! Thanks very much for joining us today. I want to dive into a little bit about the background of the case, talk about it in, in today's context, and, and talk about the process that you went through. So let's start with um, you know, this case, Espresso Lane, has been a bestseller for a number of years since it was published in 2012. What, if you think back, what prompted you to write the case and how did you originally uh, connect uh, with Ili? So, uh, yeah, I used to teach in the uh, MIP School of Management in Trieste. And as part of my teaching, I also engage with uh, local businesses. Uh, Trieste is a small city in uh, northern Italy, uh, close to the Slovenian-Croatian border, and a very international city, which has a number of multinational companies. Uh, when introduced to Ely, I discussed with them the internationalization options. Uh, I've, give, I've given some lectures uh, to their managers. So they decided that they want to do a project to better understand what are the best international markets for them and what are the best modes of entry and modes of engagement in different markets. So it really started out as a consultancy project for Ely, which is a, a medium-sized family enterprise that has been around uh, since uh, before World War II and uh, is very well known for its quality. And probably Ely is considered one of the best coffees in Italy, if not the world. No, that's, that's great. And I love to hear that, you know, it started... With the with the idea of one part of a project and then went into a case and that's a great way for for those considering authoring a case how do they get involved think about the research projects or consulting projects that you're doing exactly. because that can turn into a great a great narrative so that's that's very cool to hear exactly Let's, and what's nice about these consultancy they already start with the problem statement right so it's yeah. very, and 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 also it's very relevant right and what's even nicer about it is that the teaching note can be quite instructive because uh, personally you have experience with this company, so you could tell the stories, you know, behind the scenes. And second of all, you could enrich others, including other faculty who might be using the teaching notes to better teach this kind of a case. Yeah, I love that idea of accessibility. It it, it does lend itself to another, a number of different areas, and I want to dive into the dilemma faced by uh, Christoph. He's the managing director of Espresso Mate, and that's Ely's franchised coffee bar. Can you talk a little bit about that dilemma or that decision point that you mentioned? So first of all, the Espresso Mente brand has really evolved from the Ely manufacturing, which is the bread and butter of this company. And this was a way to go downstream closer to the customers, and it started with experimentation with Ely bars in Trieste, in Italy, later on in a few airports. And the idea there was to really emulate the Starbucks success uh, for Ely, because Ely is a better coffee than Starbucks. Yet 
doesn't have the, the wide reach and accessibility mm -hmm. that Starbucks does. So uh, initially in the 1990s, the company really tried to expand everywhere, sort of the Starbucks model, but really quickly came into trouble because of the differences that exist, their uh, unique brand, their niche strategy, uh, and, and realized that it needs to really, instead of thinking of internationalization, just adding flags, it really needs to focus on the flags that it finds most profitable. Mm. So in this way, they can concentrate the limited resources of the family businesses into those markets that are most profitable and develop those markets first, followed by secondary and third tier markets, which will kind of give them a strategy forward in the global market. I love this. Again, it comes back to that accessibility to, uh, to the student, to faculty deciding to choose this case. That is such an important thing for the student who's sitting in the chair as a decision maker to walk through of going, Okay, let's not. We can't just go global with everything. We have to be thoughtful in the in the way that we go forward and how do we do that. So I really, I really love that part of the yeah. case. And the main reason, by the way, is that companies have limited yeah. resources. So if they stretch them too thin, then they're becoming effective everywhere. Uh, so it's really, it's really quite appropriate and thoughtful to, to use your resources in the, most, in the most efficient way. I should say that one of the reasons I think this particular case has gotten a lot of traction is because the company really allowed me to use a lot of proprietary mm. data. I mean, we have sales data, we have market share data, we have, I mean, not just the kind of the secondary data that you can get out there, you know, in, in different sources, but company-specific data. And this allows this case to use more advanced techniques like uh, the Boston Consulting matrices, GE matrices. You could, you could go beyond kind of the normal environmental analysis with generic numbers and really look at what is the relevance of this particular company for that particular market. So could you talk, let's dive into that a little bit. How did you manage to get access to this? Was this just a kind of a company culture to be that open and, and forward with giving you this information? Or what did you have to do as an author to work with a company to get access? Because I think for those just starting out, they'd love to know, you know, how the heck did he manage to get, <laughs> to get access to this? So again, it started as a consultancy project. When we finished a consultancy project and we had a product that they were happy mm. with, uh, then we said, well, what can we do? What else can we do to promote the Ely brand through other channels? And maybe one way is to tell the story. And they just happen to agree. You just, you just need one manager to say, okay, now if the storyline is written about the manager, to some extent glorifying that manager and his or her decision-making, I think they're just more open to it. Um, whether that's a company culture, I'm not sure. But the fact is that some manager pushed it through legal to get it mm -hmm. So you had that internal right. champion uh, working on your behalf. You almost have to. I mean, I think, I think you almost have to. And I think you have to commit the company to exposing a few words in a sense of saying, look, we're not going to just say that you, everything is, is, you know, green and dandy and blue skies. And we're going we're gonna to talk about a few of the problems that you had that are really relevant to many other companies in your field. For example, I think that another company in the field might read this report and learn quite a lot of competitive intelligence about the company. 
But at the same time, the Ely brand being so many cases being sold out there, I don't know if you have the latest numbers, but thousands of cases have been sold. And those cases are creating a goodwill. Those cases are creating um, word of mouth. Those cases are creating brand awareness. So I think there is some value to the company to, to do this kind of outreach, not to mention their social responsibility and engagement with students. Another yeah. fact you mentioned uh, brand awareness and, and and that's something that I'd like to ask your thoughts on because the case provides a really easy jumping off point for students to think about different markets, India, UK, etc. Uh, coffee, obviously recognizable, the brand of, of this company recognizable. Does the ubiquity of the brand and the product make it easier to discuss the market selection or does it or does it present certain challenges? What do you think there? I think that really um, the brand of the case, the brand that we're discussing in the case is an important factor in adoption. I mean, if I'm going to write a case about Ely or Tesla or, uh, I don't know, one of the big Fortune 500 companies uh, outside maybe the oil companies or the mining company, but even then, I think that there's going to be more interest just because of familiarity of the faculty or the students with this. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? So, so I think there is a, it's normally if you write about small companies that are with very interesting case, you just have less adoptions. Yeah, so it just presents itself a little easier to do the, to sell the, uh, the, the, the case because of the recognition there. Just that, that's great, a very great point. We just had some research done at uh, Ivy Publishing talking about what cases sell, and we're going to release more of it. Of it. But definitely recognizable brand, uh, an industry that the student is relatable to, which is those are two fact two factors Correct. that we see have huge impact on adoption. Uh, be, uh, no question. Like consumer brands, for example, are going to be more interesting than a business to business. You know something that maybe the, comp the students are not really involved with it day to day. Yeah, when you don't have to uh, explain what the company is or, or their background right. to students, you can immediately go into the learning mode and, and students have a kind of a head start in that, in the practice of whether it's online or, or physically in the classroom, uh, their ability to contribute uh, it really increases with that brand awareness, industry awareness. Could you talk a little bit about the mode of entry and the complexities the case introduces here? Because that's one of the things that I love about the case and uh, why faculty pick it up. So talk a little bit about mode of entry. I'm not sure whether they pick it up for the international market selection or the mode of entry, because this case really has both. And if you look at another best-selling case that I have, which was the Ruth Chris Steakhouse case, that too was a simple, uh, short international market selection uh, study that came out of uh, consultancy as well. So I think people are interested in international market selection, first of all. Second of all, of course, the next step is, okay, you've selected country, but how do you enter them? And the complexities there are a bit different because then you have a range of options from um, I guess exporting of the beans to licensing of the or franchising all the way up to joint venture and uh, full ownership, and 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 then when you think about well what is this company capable of doing, uh, given their size 
where are they most likely to succeed without major adaptation? And what is the level of risk and return that they're looking to take in each one of these markets? And so this opens a whole, a whole new dimension of analysis, which is oftentimes, by the way, a separate chapter from the international market selection in international business and international market classes. Well, that's great. Now, this is a question that I love asking and getting the insight from the author on is that, you know, the case was written in 2012. You, you've taught it countless times. You've um, worked work on the teaching note. Have you had any particular challenges or surprises when you've taught the case? I love getting this insight. and The listeners like, that like to hear about this as well. First of all, this case is a very complex case with quite a lot of numbers. So. The challenges that I think in general when you give students cases and you present them with some information is A, they assume they need to use all the information mm-hmm. and B, they only use the information presented. So it's, it's, they make two kind of strategic errors in their analysis of, of the cases. Uh, again, if I may go back to, let's say, the Ruth Chris Steakhouse, another best-selling case, Oftentimes, the students don't even specify the the role of regulation in meat exports uh, when they're thinking about the right markets, right? So they just think within the box. And the whole point is that we need to teach students to think outside the box, right? That's that's the whole point, right? So, So I think that that's really the surprising part. Second of all, they think there is only one way to present it. So, for example, it's very hard for them to conceptualize a BCG or a GE matrix when the market share is very small. They don't know how to draw the line, where to draw the line, right? They, they can't take it, for most students, a step further of extrapolation and, 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 and uh, insight that you can get from this particular data set. So what's really helpful for me is when I show them in the end what I'm doing and how I analyze it, it just blows them away because they they realize, you know, even though they use a lot of the common vocabulary, a lot of the existing models, they're not using them effectively. Mm. How do you uh, encourage students to to think outside the box? You mentioned that, you know, it's often uh, students just analyze or look at what's presented to them and are job as educators is to really expand that thinking, to expand the questioning as well. How do you get the students to break free of those uh, of those boundaries that are sometimes self-imposed? Well, I, I think that one way to do that is to uh, simply show it to them, right? Show them that they are, they're missing. Uh, or using too much, using data they may not need. For example, in the case of Ely, what is really the value of the Hofstede data, right? I mean, like, how does power distance impact our coffee drinking behaviors, right? I mean, I I don't know. Maybe you could tell me. I, I don't really, I mean, I can extrapolate it. I can make an explanation, but is it really relevant? Um. Is individualism really a relevant variable? Or do you use these Hofstede uh, measures as simply as a way to kind of gauge the cultural distance on the composite or on the, on the total level of the country, simply to get a proxy for, okay, 
uh, in trying to understand, for example, what is the role or need for adaptation, right? So, uh, so a lot of times it's simply having the briefing after the student do the analysis and present their findings to be able to kind of take them through the briefing of, okay, here's the way I looked at it. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm not saying all my answers are correct, but but at least you could see how, you know, a professional assessment of this situation from an experienced IB consultant would look so like. You're opening the door and you're showing them that, ah, here's, an, here's another perspective. And I guess as you're working through the whole course, when you look at over the course of time, as you continue to show these different viewpoints, these different perspectives, the student starts to think, okay, there's more to a case or there's more to a discussion in the classroom than just what I'm seeing written down on paper or on the screen. So it's a, I guess that's a long-term play for you is to continue that reinforcing of, of other ideas and perspectives. To some extent, I think what the student sees is that they are, they are thinking within the box. They're thinking within a, a mindset of a case, like a simulation mm. in a sense. Simulations are also a lot of fun, right? Uh, students love them. Professors like them. But they make a lot of assumptions about reality that we don't see. So we think, yes, if we, if we do uh, you know, X, like, I don't know, raise the price, we will get Y as an outcome. Reality works very different, right? I mean, Apple raises the price regularly and they're still gaining market share, right? So, so the idea is that a case, uh, by showing the limitations of the case, I think you are expanding the the mindset of uh, that's of the great. Student. So for those that are uh, you know considering adopting this case or any others, build in uh, a time to go through this with the students. The limitations. I really like that. I wanted to revisit it. Show the limitations of the case and be open with that with your with your students. Yeah. So so let's go yeah. into the writing side of this. We've talked about how this works in the class. Some of the different ideas. The the Christoph's point of view here, what challenges that he had to face. For those uh, faculty, for those authors who are thinking about, you know, writing a case, maybe it's their first one or they're, they're just going on to their second one. What did working on this case teach you? Go back in time to when you were writing this. Were there any major aha moments or teachable moments that you think this is something somebody else needs to be aware of? So this particular case is unique, like every case, but this particular case is unique in which in the way in which the writing happened. Because as I as I told you earlier, the original writing was a consultancy report to a problem that they had relating to international marketing, uh, international market selection, modes of entry, etc., optimization problem. And uh, I produced, I don't know. The first version, maybe 50 page, 60 page uh, report with exhibits, with evidence, with research, et cetera. And when the manager came back to me with the report, he basically highlighted all the things that were relevant and interesting mm. to him. And in drafting the case, I literally picked up the stuff that he highlighted and made that the case because it allowed me, it gave me an insight into what he thinks out of these 50 pages is important in the case in you know for this for his decisions. So I was kind of I almost kind of reverse engineered 
you know, the management thinking in this case, which I think Man, there's, a, cool. there's a couple things that stand out there. One, the, again, the importance of having a great partner at the at the company that really walked along with yeah. you this whole process. And then there's another thing yeah. that I wanted to highlight, and we've heard this a little bit from uh, other writers, and there's a great book. It's actually by Stephen King called On Writing. And you mentioned that the first yeah. draft was 50 pages with lots in there. That is such a great thing to do. Get everything down on paper. You don't have to write the final copy first time. <laughs> Get everything down that you can think of. And then you can start that editing process and weeding it down and showing it to others. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Has that evolved um, since writing this case to, to the ones that you're writing now and other bestsellers? Or do you still do that? Do you still get lots down on, on paper, as it were? You know, everybody looks for the cookie cutter formula. And I can tell you again that every case is like a child. You know, it's a world to itself. And uh, I could talk about this particular case and how it worked. But if we take other best selling cases that I've had, also with Ivy, by the way, uh, you will find that actually each case evolved from a different point of view in a different way. Uh, so I can't say that there is one way to do that. Take, for example, the, the Ruth Chris Steakhouse case as, a, 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 as another example. That was a very, very short case. And I think the reason it became a bestseller is because it was like, a, I don't know, seven pages long. And it had a lot of, it really had a content of three hours or two and a half hours that a professor can, can teach with. Even though it was extremely short, it was very clean. And in, in contrast, the Espressamente Ili case is very long and dense and full of information and allows you to do all sort of analysis and reach all sort of conclusions, both right and wrong, right? So I think professors like both cases exactly for the fact, for the reason that they're very different in what they provide, but they provide value to that professor and that set of students. So... You know, and it was written in this way. It was written to to be very focused on a particular problem of international market selection. So the value and and making sure that there's a focus to the case and and let that actually drive the creation process is what I'm hearing. Is that uh, is that kind of what you're trying to say about the the different types of cases in the process? So I had a professor in uh, Harvard Business School, a friend of mine, a colleague, a case writer, once told me that you have to start by looking at what chapter it's going to be in, what topic it's going to be in that you're teaching, uh, for which you're writing this case. I think a lot of people who are inexperienced at writing cases think it's a story. Think it's a storytelling about a company, a description of a company. No, this is a description of an event normally. A, 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 you know, And the same thing, by the way, if you write academic papers, right? The first thing you have to do in the introduction is build the tension, right? You need to build the tension. Company is going in a particular direction. Boom. Events in the world have changed in some particular way. That changes the business model. That changes things that, that changes the behaviors that they chose before. And they require them to make some kind of a change. That's what a good case does, right? Because it allows you to think about change management. It allows you to think about strategy. It allows you to think about critical decision-making skills. And that's the point of cases. So a good case should start with a problem in the same way that a good paper starts with a research question, right? 
you need to think about what is the problem you're solving with this case. And this also gives you the, the, the indication uh, which, what kind of external data you need to get. Because every problem requires different types of tools and solutions and data. So to some extent, this is the disservice that we do to our students because we say to them, well, here's the problem. And then we tell them, here's the solution. Now try to figure out how to get from, you know, from the solution to, from the problem to the solution. Yep. You see what I mean? Because the data you choose to collect to some extent is already part of the solution. No, I hear what I hear what you're saying. How do we break out of that leading? What? So maybe, maybe I don't know, but one way to think about it is maybe to give problems for which the solution has not been um, the data has mm. not been collected. The solution has not been. So, for example, we might say in the abstract, let's look at Home Depot. And let's say, let's look at Home Depot today. So go to the internet and see what kind of countries they're in. And then tell me what countries they should go into and what kind of data I need to collect in order to know what are the best countries for them. And so in this way, they're out there, I don't know, searching for GDP when in fact they need to search for, I don't know, uh, do-it-yourself culture. You yeah, see? and that's, that's one thing that it reminded me of is that... Uh... You know, having sat in case classes is that it's the process. Uh, it's not always about a right answer or, you know, getting to be getting to that end state. It's that process that is the learning point sometimes uh, for cases. So that's that's a great reminder for, for authors. I think another great reminder is that students always get a satisfaction when uh, and I think it's very important, especially even if it's an older case. Students can research and say, well, what actually happened, right? What actually, what did the company actually do? And sometimes I would say students may even cheat a little during the research project and see what the company actually did, like which markets they went into is usually out there, right? And, uh, and they get a lot of satisfaction. They say, wow, we were right. We solved it correctly. And what I always tell them is just because the company did it, it doesn't mean that was the correct thing. In fact, I've met many companies that have done things that ended up being very bad yep. for profits, you know? So, so don't, get, don't get ahead of yourself. The company doesn't have the magic wand either, right? So nobody has the right answers all the time. What we need to think about is what are the opportunity costs of different decisions, right? What we need to understand is how taking uh, pathway A is different than taking pathway B. Both might lead you to success. Both might lead you to failure. One may give you more success than other. That's all. That's all something that can and be that's discussed. that process, that rigor that is uh, given to the students as an opportunity, and that's what the where the learning comes out for the student. Yeah, like you said, not just finding the right answer. That process is the learning. So let's take this case study as an example. In this case study, the company ended up uh, following a strategy. Uh, that is, uh, I think, also in the in the teaching notes we discussed it, but I also let others discuss it. That ended up being very bad for the decision maker in the sense that the decision maker ultimately had to leave his job uh, because of the decisions that he mm -hmm. took. The question is, did he make the right decisions? 
right? Should this company even be in the retail business given their manufacturing background, right? Many of the decisions they made before ended up uh, costing them a lot of money. So obviously, you know, one part is, okay, it's a fit with the market. Another part is it's a fit with the company's culture, right? And the student has really no way to assess that. But really, it's very nice to be able to tell the student what happened thereafter. Uh, and oftentimes, bad yeah, things happen. Yeah, this happens. is the re. <laughs> and so, so, I, so I think it's quite, it's quite interesting to discuss that with the students because then they get a perspective. And by the way, who knows? Maybe Crystal made the right decision. Maybe, maybe the company's wrong. Maybe the, you know, I don't know. We we will never know, right? Because we already made a decision, so we don't know what the alternative outcome would have and been. And what you just said is a reinforcing point of the importance of, you know, you know, if you've got ten or fifteen minutes left in the class, the importance of wrapping up maybe what happened, uh, alternative solutions, uh, other discussions to, to tie a bow on that classroom experience for the student. There's a lot that can happen in that last few sections of the class after everybody's gone through their analysis. There's the follow-up of what happened, reinforcing where the the case maybe didn't look at a point and alternative perspectives. So for those that are thinking of picking up this case or others, don't forget that last section of, of the classroom experience. That's the aha moment for the students. That's, that's when they actually learn, right? Because before that, they're just applying the models that you told them to apply to a set of data you told them to apply it to. And they assume they could get a solution or the mm-hmm. optimal solution. And the aha moment is like, A, the set of data you used may not have been the best data. And B, the set of tools that you used may not have given you the right answer. And C, maybe you even misapply the tools the way and the, and the conclusions that you reached from them. Absolutely. Well, this has been a great discussion about your process for coming up with the case. You know, the importance of a strong partner in the organization. It sounds like you had just a great relationship uh, throughout this whole process. You know, some tips and tricks for teaching the case and and some general comments about writing. So I want to take the time to thank you so much for for spending some time with us uh, today. You're joining us from Norway. (laughs) So uh, thank you for for spending the time with us and thank you for sharing the insights that you've had as a best-selling author across a number of different cases. So thank you again for the time today. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe to Decision Point on Spotify or wherever you listen. And be sure to check out the show notes for links to cases, resources, and more. Have any feedback? Send us an email at cases at iv.ca.